Hey guys, you like science? You like learning? We can't cover everything on this podcast, certainly not as in-depth as I'd like to all of the time. Well, here's an important topic you need to know about. Water. Do you have it? Are you drinking it? Where is it coming from? All sorts of important questions you need to know. There is now the new Waterline podcast, which is an initiative of the Israel New Tech, a part of the Israeli Ministry of Economy and Industry. Waterline podcast aims to bring the latest scientific advances in technological solutions while exploring economic models and identifying key players in the global effort to secure water sources, create efficient water usage, and make water safe for everyone. I just checked out a really cool, interesting episode called Want Not, Waste Not, Wastewater. It's all about what happens to your wastewater. It's going to waste a lot of times, but does it need to? Absolutely not. What happens to all that discarded wastewater? Once treated, it has uh, economic and ecological value that can even drive nation's economies. It could even light up your house. How? Find out on that episode of the Waterline Podcast. Search Waterline Podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. Hey, everybody. Uh, thanks for listening. I have some exciting news. I have someone new doing some of the audio or most all of the audio mixing um, for me, and I'm also going to start to learn as well. Uh, there's There's been... Um, with I, I I've never made a podcast uh, on my own before, and um, and I got all this equipment and didn't know what I was doing, and I've been learning along the way, and so there's been uh, there's been some excellent um, feedback and constructive criticism from you guys regarding sound stuff and some levels being off here and there on certain episodes, which is super helpful, especially when it's really specific like a a time that you um like the episode number and like a a time when we were saying this and that uh you know someone's voice dropped off stuff like that is super helpful and keep it coming but i have um i have a new uh guy doing my sound mixing for me ramin nazer who is now basically doing everything for this podcast behind the scenes he's my web guy he did the other cover art for it um he uh, uh, we discuss marketing ideas and all sorts of other stuff. And R- Ramin's a really super funny comedian and an awesome artist. You should go to RaminNazer.com and check out like his videos and comic strips and um, etc. His stand up and everything else. He's very talented, and I'm lucky to uh, have him working with me. Um, so he's. He's also he's new to mixing sound for podcasts and he's putting a lot of time into it. The fir- he did the first one episode 22 um last week and he'll be go- doing the other ones moving forward at least until I have enough time to um to learn it and take over to take the burden off of him. But anyhow, so keep on sending feedback um good and bad. But uh, with sound thing, usually people only comment when something's wrong. So m- make sure if, if you're enjoying the sound quality, make sure and 
write a good note as well. Um, go to the Ask a Scientist at the Here We Are Podcast.com page. Those all go directly to me. And let me know anything else that we can do in the future to improve uh, anything. Any suggestions are all welcome. And thank you guys so much for the support. I feel like this thing's starting to uh, get some traction and people seem to be digging it. So um, that's exciting. Uh, and thank you and enjoy this episode. I don't know how to end things. I don't know when to stop talking. Okay, bye. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hey everybody, welcome to the Here We Are podcast. This is Shane Moss. I have a very special guest today. I saw him on um, the show Brain Games on Netflix, and I was in the area. I contacted him and was lucky enough to get a hold of him and agreed, uh, to, and he agreed to come on and talk to us a little bit about visual perception. If you haven't seen the, the show Brain Games on Netflix, I highly recommend it, and he is on episode one, I think it was. Uh, so welcome, my guest here at the University of Madison, the head of the Rokers <laughs> Vision Lab, Bob. Boss Rokers, everybody. Thank you for having me, Shane. Thank you. Um, so we've, I'm, I'm excited to have you on because we've talked a little bit on on the podcast. A little, we've hinted at some areas of visual perception, and I'm very obsessed with the idea of how we um, come to perceive the things that we do and how in line with reality that is. And um, and and I thought this would be um, an amazing episode. And maybe before we get into your work specifically, maybe you could set up a little general, a little 101 on how um, I'm able to see all of this stuff that I'm I'm looking around an office and there's I see a file cabinet, a window, some blinds, a desk, and a bunch of scattered papers some a bookcase behind me and a whiteboard and um and and a professor so how am i seeing all of this stuff with these two circles in my skull well i thought you're gonna start with an easy question <laughs> you basically yes asked me to explain the whole process yeah yeah the whole visual system you have exactly one hour go <laughs> <laughs> all right let's uh let's give this a shot um so the part, well, there's, there's a lot of different components to it, right? So there's the physics of vision. So what is it? What are the physical signals that, are, um, that you're actually latching onto? There's a lot to say about that, and I'll do that in a second. Okay. Um, then there's the optics, right? So what does the eye itself do? Uh, and then there's the neural processing. So what does the brain have to do with it? And most of the time, people think about the eye, right? Like we see with our eyes, we hear with our ears, um, and that's the short story and if there's something wrong with your eyes you're not going to see it so well now it turns out if you um if there's something wrong with your brain you're also there's there's particular things you're going to be bad at um let's start with the physics side though right so really what's happening is uh light as we know it uh is really electromagnetic radiation that's exactly what it is it's just a part of the uh electromagnetic radiation spectrum that we happen to be sensitive to. Uh, 
Um, there's other parts of the spectrum which you know about, but that we're not or that we cannot see. Uh, we can sense them in other ways. Like for, predator vision? Like predator vision, yeah. Infrared <laughs> uh, vision. Infrared. Like, yeah, viper vision. Uh, but even more like your uh, cell phone works on the same kind of radiation. So if you were able to see in the cell phone spectrum, um, you, should see, you could see all these signals moving around through space or your Wi-Fi or, you know, uh, television waves that are going through the air. Um, and so we just happen to be sensitive to a particular piece of that spectrum. And the, the piece that we are sensitive to is um, conveniently centered on the uh, wavelength. So there's these different frequencies. Uh, and one, another way to think about that is wavelength. So the spectrum is consisting of lots of signals at different frequencies. The ones that we're most sensitive to are the ones that are conveniently centered on the frequency of sunlight. Mm. And that's not so surprising because sunlight's all around. And so, you know, if you want to pick anything that you want to be sensitive to, then maybe sunlight is the best thing to do. It also explains why we don't see so well when the sunlight's gone, right? We don't see so well in the dark, um, even though there's like other information still there, right? So infrared light, for example, this is just, well, we, we commonly think that of as radiation or heat coming from the body. Um, if we were sensitive to that, we would see, be, able, be able to see much better in the dark and you know, some animals take advantage of that by preying on you, like predator, I guess. <laughs> right. Yeah, I would settle for something that can just detect Arnold Schwarzenegger for me, like <laughs> may, maybe an arrow in my perception that and I know exactly where he is. And I'll, what a fun party trick. That's, Arnold Schwarzenegger is 300 miles that way, right? That's <laughs> right. a funny story about that. He actually signed my uh, PhD. What? Uh, well, he was, he was governor of uh, California at the time. I went to UCLA. And so he had the, the governor of California then approves all of people that come from the UC system. And so his signature is on my uh, diploma. <laughs> that's amazing. So that's what, two steps to predator? Uh, yeah, yeah, two steps to predator. That's it. Yeah. By the way, a uh, quick uh, uh, divergent. Where are you from? What's the accent? That I'm, I'm Dutch thinking? originally. Oh, so okay. I went there for undergrad and then I came to the U.S. in 98, I think. I'm not going to say how old I was back then because then you can work it out. Um, so this this color uh, spectrum that we're able to see because animals are possibly seeing different kinds of color perception, it's my understanding that the the limited range is uh, we're seeing kind of the warmer um, colors as, as red. That's the um, That would be the longer waves. Those would be um, – are you putting me on the spot? Uh, I think it is the longer waves, the longer and then waves, blue yes. colder is the is the shorter waves, mm -hmm. and um, and so somehow. But we're also able to see colors that that don't have a particular wavelength, right? So brown, for example, is not does not exist. So look at the rainbow; those are all the all the different frequencies that you can have. There's no brown in the rainbow, and now you know why. It's because it's not a single color. Ah, okay. Um, all right, so so we want to do a little bit more physics to see how this works. Sure, sure. All right, so these um, this radiation, this electromagnetic radiation, is bouncing off of surfaces all the time. And the only thing that we see is through some sort of happy accident that bouncing results in that wave exactly hitting your eye, mm. right? So it can bounce off any object and then hit your eye. Um, it's probably not advisable to do it, but you could look at the sun, right? So then there's a direct pathway, but most of the light that we actually get in has bounced off of other particles. Um, and then the ones that hit the eye, those are the ones that you see. Okay. Um, so so like, why, why do you see 
why is the sky blue and then at sunset um when you're looking toward the sun that's that's a reddish color. this is a very good question so the sky is blue because other wavelengths than blue so the lo- the longer wavelengths like red are being absorbed by particles that are in the air mm. uh, and so they are in a way you can think of uh, as being subtracted right so the the, the red light gets absorbed, then doesn't bounce off these particles anymore. It actually changes into a little bit of heat. Uh, but the blue light bounces off of stuff, or the blue wavelengths. And those then have a higher chance of hitting, hitting your eye. And that's why the sky looks blue. Uh, and sunset, so then you have a lot of yellowish light uh, bouncing off, and that's why that then becomes red. Oh, okay. Because it's more direct. It's more direct, yes. Yeah, so uh, the, the sky will still look on the other side behind you will still be blue. And the, the thing that interests me is I, I read um, I read you're talking about the colors on the rainbow. Um, I, I've read a little bit of stuff. It seems that in different cultures, they like if you give them a set of two hundred crayons or whatever, they'll draw the rainbow differently. Um, so I don't know about that. I do know different on how they been taught the colors i don't know about that but i do know so um your uh color names that you have like uh, influence your perception we have someone in the department who works on this kind of stuff so for example in russian there's two names for blue, what we call blue there's like a palish like light blue or like maybe an azure and then there's like a darker navy blue mm. and those have two it's not like light blue and dark blue it's like they're really separate colors and so they seen then a, a, a an edge or like a, a sharp edge between these two colors that we don't see. We would call both of them blue, but for them it's like, no, now it's this one color and now it's this other color. And why is it, why, why don't we have infrared? Why don't we have uh, eagle eyes that can see a very long distance? Why don't we have x-ray vision? These other, these other neat little superpowers you that would be... <laughs> <laughs> you have some some special interest there. Um, um, so these are usually ecological arguments, right? So it's uh, whatever evolutionary niche you grew up in, the ones that are most useful, uh, those are the ones that you wind up having. Um, so if you're a pit viper and you're preying on little mice that are walking around, you want to you know just sit there, maybe you know just see body heat moving around, and you develop a sensitivity to infrared light. Um, humans grew up around water and so they want to like be able to see colors that are like in the blue yellow spectrum the only thing to remember is so you you could of course just have complete sensitivity Uh, but it's very um, has a very high metabolic or energy cost so you want to try and like satisfy right you want to come up with the smallest number of wavelengths that still allow you to Outcompete your uh, your brother or your sister, I guess. Without burning up all the glucose in your brain, or exactly whatever, without without having, having to, to spend all the time. spend so much time getting food. Yes, right. Well, because I mean, uh, along those same lines, uh, you could. Uh, I mean, uh, any any surface isn't isn't like as flat or whatever else as as we're perceiving it. Or, uh, you know, on certainly on like a molecular level or on the. Uh, level of an atom or something like that. My hand's not even making contact with the uh, this table right now, but it, um, but the, it the certainly fr- looks that way. The so. fractal nature of surfaces is what you're talking about. Yeah, you keep yeah. zooming in and you keep seeing like more structure. Yeah, yeah. 
But but you, you zooming in further and further would take possibly more energy than is beneficial. Well, so zo- zooming in is so that's a slightly different thing, right? So first we were talking about being able to see in in a range that we are not sensitive to, like infrared or ultraviolet. Right. Uh, you can also do zooming in and say being being able to distinguish colors that we cannot distinguish. Mm. Um, and so you can do this. Uh, well, we can't, but ducks can and uh, shrimp can. So sh- ducks have four different uh, receptors in their eyes that are sensitive to different wavelengths of light. So humans have three. So this starts getting into the actual brain or the eye stuff, right? So humans have three what are called cones, three different types of cells that are sensitive to, roughly speaking, um, blue, red, and green wavelengths. Now, if, and uh, what about people that are are colorblind? So they're or? missing one of those cone types. Okay. Or two of the cone types are sensitive to a wavelength that's very close together, and so it's hard for them to distinguish. And so the most common one that they're missing is a red or green. So most of the, the, the highly, most prevalent is red green colorblindness. And then there's a there's a strange. Um, a gender effect for this as well. Or it's not that strange, right? So color vision, these um, these cone types are coded on the gender chromosomes. And so therefore, they, it occurs in about 10% of males and less than 1% of females are colorblind. But mm. interestingly, I have a postdoc in the lab who's female and is colorblind. Oh. Uh, red, green. I, did I see something about how there, there might be some females out there that are more sensitive um, there, as well to the color spectrum? There are very tenuous reports that there's some people that have four cone types. Mm. Um, this has been, I think it's now shown on a genetic level that this is true, but the question is can you use it behaviorally, right? And there we don't, we're not really sure if it actually, if it's functional. But what what would it theoretically even like for being a better painter? You're or asking good like questions. Uh, so then you get into the issue of metamers. Um, so metamers are colors that would look the same to you and me, but would look appreciably different to somebody who had four cone types. It would look so. The easiest way to understand this is think about somebody who's colorblind and compare that to your performance, right? So somebody who's red green colorblind, you show them red. Or you show them green and they tell you, well, this is like an orangey. It's like a dirty orange. And you're like, no, one is red, one is green. It's like they're not even similar. Like they're yeah. not even the same. So it's the same for somebody who has four cone types. I show you like something that's red and they're like, or I show you two patches that you both see as red. And then they say, no, these are two completely different colors. These are these are not even the same. So that's maybe the way you, to, to wrap your head around it. Oh, Hmm. hmm. That's interesting to think about. All right. So, yeah, so here then is, there's another thing that um, that might also give you some perspective. So we, we make visual displays, right? We make computer monitors and stuff like that. And so you've looked at those closely. Like, have you like seen the little dots in there? Um, I'm like, sorry. Like, repeat well, that. Have you looked at? If you look at a computer display, closely, the pixels. Yes, the pixels. Oh, oh. You, have you ever looked at the subpixels? No, I'm not. All right. So sure every pixel, every pixel on a display has uh, three subpixels, and they're red, green, and blue. Uh, and that is because for to humans, if you have these three subpixels, it can reproduce every color that we can see. But 
if you're colorblind, you don't need three subpixels. You only need two because those are all the colors you can see anyway. So you could potentially get a cheaper monitor, you know, where one of the subpixels is not working and it's still it's still the same. Oh. But this is why a computer monitor has these three different subpixels. It's exactly because we have three different receptors in our eyes. Hmm. So with four cones, uh, or if you're uh, me, if you're a shrimp, there's, there's this praying shrimp that I think has seventeen cone types. So this is making. I, I mean, it's hard to even imagine. It is but it, it, this is making their world more like vivid in a way. It's not vivid. They have more colors. Just they, more they, colors. They can name. They can discriminate colors that you cannot discriminate. So like more categories of colors. Correct. So we have like Roy G. Biv, yes. which I don't know why they. <laughs> why is that catchy, Roy? Uh, I don't know Sounds why they good. taught us that, uh, rather than. Vib G, yeah, or whatever, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, so theoretically, more cones would add a lot more letters in that. Uh, uh, shrimp and their elementary schools are having to memorize a lot more. Um, <laughs> yeah, they would have to come up with a very long mnemonic to, to, to do that, and and they would think that our TVs suck. Yeah, because there's colors in the world that are not reproducible on their TV on on the TV screens that we have, according to them. Hmm. Um. So that's a, and you do a lot of stuff with um like depth perception and how we're making sense of our 3D world. That's correct. Right. Yeah. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So. So this is kind of like, uh, to some extent, an, an artifact of history, right? So computer displays have gotten really good, and scientists use the equipment that's really good. And so what we do in the lab most of the time is we uh, we look we, we try to figure out how the brain works by using these computer displays. But of course, it misses a big part because we are not going around the world looking at computer displays. We actually are mostly interested in things that are moving towards and away from us. Uh, not so much in things that are moving left and right in a computer screen. Uh, and so I'm interested in trying to figure out how, well, let's say as a first step, presenting two different images to the two eyes instead of the same image to the two eyes, um, how that then results in you perceiving depth. And that gets to something that's called perceptual inference that we probably should talk about a little bit. Yeah, let's talk about that. Okay, so perceptual inference. Um, so we generally... When I when I have an undergraduate uh, that I that I in my class, like the first idea is like perception is immediate, right? There's not really a puzzle to be solved. Like you see something and it's there. You know, I see this table, uh, and there's not really like a mystery of how I get to see this table. But um, on the science side, we think about this process of being perceptual inference. So this table being there is our best guess of what's out there in the world given the neural activity that we have in our brain. And so we do that for everything. So we um, try to work out, um, given the action potentials, given the activity on my retina, so given the activity of these three different cone types, right, what's the color that's out there in the world? And so we've already talked a little bit about this being wrong all the time, right? So if you're colorblind, you're going to have a different answer than if you're not colorblind. And if you have more than our three different cone types, you're going to have a different answer. Um, than, than we have. Uh, and so we make these guesses all the time. That's probably the best way to think about it. Our perception is our best guess as to what's out in the world. Um, and so we do the same with 3D vision. So we get 
really what all we have access to is two flat images, right? One for the left eye, one for the right eye. Your eye is very much like a camera, so you take a picture for the right eye, you take a picture for the left eye. These are flat images, like you can walk around them, you know, not, there's no depth in the picture. Right. Um, and so what your brain has to do is then has to figure out, given these two images and the small differences between these two images, what's the most likely state of the world? What's the most likely arrangement of objects in the world, given these two flat images? And so that's one of the things that I work on. How you, how do you do that? And when does that break down? And, uh, yeah, could you explore that a little bit? Because I, I know that um, sometimes you're using, um, like, visual illusions and stuff to explore this, which will be a little bit hard to talk about on the podcast. <laughs> well, we'll just, yeah, we'll talk about it. We'll see how it goes. Like, yeah, come up with common visual illusions. Um, so visual illusions are a way of... Uh, showing us what goes wrong or it shows us what the assumptions are that the brain is making um, so let's think yeah this is a little little hard to talk about on a, on a podcast right because it's all visual stuff well there's a, I mean there's things that you can do with like holding a finger in front of your face and uh, and kind of going closing back one and eye forth closing and, the other eye and then the image uh, jumps back and forth getting the idea of two different pictures that are yeah so you can you can certainly do that so you, you can convince yourself that really um you're getting two different images um of the world and yeah when you hold your finger up you look at your finger you close one eye close the other eye then you see everything that's behind it jump back and forth left and right and that then tells you that these images are in fact different and if you're in a cubicle right now holding your <laughs> finger in front of your face and just blinking back and forth and your boss comes by, you might get fired, and then you'll get to see what freedom looks tell like. Him, tell him you're doing science. <laughs> yeah. You're doing an experiment. <laughs> um, yeah, so then what, what kind of visual illusion can we, can we talk about? So what do, you, what do, we, what do we commonly – and oh, let's talk about vection, right? So um, sometimes when you sit in a train and you're like reading a book and then the train next to you starts moving – you actually have this experience that you are moving and that oh, the train yeah. next to you is stationary. Everybody's had this, right? Um, and those two things, to some extent, are interchangeable, right? So the, the visual experience that you're getting is consistent with both options. It could either be that the other train is moving or your train is moving and the other train is stationary. And so your brain has to make this decision, like, which one is it? And especially when you're distracted a little bit, can choose the wrong one because it doesn't have enough information it's not checking all the other cues that are telling you that it's moving one of which is in your ear which is a sense that you have uh to detect acceleration oh that's in uh, that it is interesting to me how all of those other senses are feeding into what we're seeing like uh one of the analogies that i read a while back was how if if you're running the information coming from your eyeballs is just bouncing around all over the place. If you were taking a picture here and a picture there every every millisecond or whatever, it would it would kind of be scattered all over the place. But there's information coming in from um, your inner ear and your sense of balance that are communicating with, I don't know what part of the brain, and putting together this perception that you're kind of running toward this it's the kind of the steady state that you're running towards something. Yeah, your brain has to do this all the time. So, I mean, your eyes are doing lots of things that you're not aware of, right? So as you're just uh, going around, uh, your eyes are moving around the whole time. Um, yeah, so this goes back to physics a little bit. There's only a very small part of your retina, which is the light-sensitive part at the back of your eye, um, that is very accurate. Uh, and that's called your fovea. 
and that's a relatively small part. It's actually um, if you hold your thumb at arm's length, uh, then the width of your thumb is where you can actually see sharp, where you can see color very well, and where you can see detail very well. Now, of course, this is not what we believe, right? Because we have this idea that we see everything around us as completely in focus. And it turns out not to be true. It's just your brain recreating some sort of representation and like maintaining that. Um, and there's these experiments called change blindness. So you can look this up on Google if you're uh, listening, I guess, uh, where we show that you can change like big parts of a visual scene. And if you don't happen to be looking there, you won't notice that they have changed. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's also, I mean, like a blind spot in a car, you, you have this perception in your head that there's not a car, um, uh, to your left or whatever. And, and then you go to change lanes and get all a different perception. Then other senses are all of a sudden telling you that there was in fact a car there. <laughs> um, and uh, so, so as we're taking in. So just uh, that's the width of a thumb at arm's length from the eyes. So if I'm looking around at this, so how am I putting together the, uh, so is it like your eyes are kind of They're jumping scary, around yes. r really quickly uh, on, on like a micro level or so if you slowed it down They're scanning. Enough? They're scanning around, but also the brain is taking advantage of the fact that most things in the world are not really changing mm. uh, most of the time, right? So most of the things in the world are stationary and... There's no, yeah, nothing's happening there. And so you can just say, you can take a picture of that part and then just keep that picture, right? And you don't check again. You're just like, okay, well, this is there. Like, you know, there's a person standing there or, you know, this is where the wall is. And the wall is not, probably not going to change. Hopefully it's not going to change. Uh, and so you just represent that. You don't have to check it the whole time. You just build a representation and then you're done with that part. And then you can focus on the things that are actually changing. Ah, and is that kind of dependent on um, your worldview in a way or the information that you have? Like, like whether or not you see a ghost is kind of dependent on what your personal beliefs are or how, how big you are into Patrick Swayze movies or, <laughs> <laughs> or something. Much, it's yeah. kind of dependent on, on, on your, what visual perception you're... Sometimes you, you won't... You know, actually, here's an example. I saw someone. Oh, this was incredibly embarrassing. This is speaking of. I recorded my album in Madison mm -hmm. at a comedy club on state last weekend. And afterwards, I go out and I was meeting. I was going to meet some staff um, for a drink or whatever and hang out with some friends and stuff. And I'm walking through a bar. I'm looking for, I think my cousin at the time and I'm scanning around everywhere and some guys just like kind of looking at me. So I, I'm, I'm assuming this is like someone that saw the show or something like that. And, um, and I, I, I was like, Hey, uh, or they said, Hey, or something like that. And I was like, Oh, Hey, I just kept on walking. It was like, I didn't know if they were just saying hi to be friendly or not. So it was this awkward situation. And then they did it again. And I was like, oh, were you at the show? And uh, or, and then he's, I think he said something like, oh, I didn't catch the show or something. Or maybe he didn't hear me. Anyway, happened again outside on the street that he just like comes up to me. And he's like, uh, you look like you're looking for someone or something like that. And I was like, yeah, I was at the comedy club. I was looking to meet the staff. And he's like, I was the bartender at the comedy club. Now, I had been looking at this guy all week, but in a different context than I than 
seeing him outside in the street and wearing different clothes and everything else. So I wasn't expecting. Um, a colleague to see of mine, uh, Brad Postle, he calls that the butcher on the bus, right? So it's the same. You meet your butcher in the on the bus and you would never recognize him because you just have no yeah, expectation of seeing him there um, <laughs> another thing people do is like <laughs> what a bizarre reference to me. Yeah, I like yeah. it though the butcher on the it's catchy it, it alliterates yeah it works really well um, <laughs> the other thing is of course like asking people to draw a penny from memory and stuff like that right so you've seen a penny like what and then you're like okay fine then just draw what's on it and you can't do it like you don't know what's on it Really? I feel like I'd be able to draw a penny right now. Right, no, we'll, I'm, we'll, we'll I'm not after, going to. I'm too embarrassed. <laughs> I, I'm sure I would be wrong. Um, it, that's interesting. So so how exactly are we – what are the number of different inferences we're making in putting together the 3D world? Because you kind of um, – what have we covered uh, so far? Just the kind of 2D – what's that, stereo vision? Is that Stereo vision yeah, is just another way of saying 3D vision. But So, yeah, we have two images okay. on the back of our eye, uh, and then we try to figure out the 3D configuration. Uh, and so, so like, um, you can use a viewfinder – or, or something like that from when you were a kid, and that's just two two that's dimensional just two images, yeah. images. But it, it looks three D to you because that's how three D works in the in the real world as well, right? There's nothing magical about the real world. It's still two images. Each of your eyes is getting two images, and so we can simulate in our psychology lab. We can simulate scenes that will look three D to the observer, but are just really two images. We just show one on one screen and another on another screen. We make sure that. The two eyes are seeing these two separate screens, um, and then that produces uh, a 3D percept, as we call it. Ah, and that's how they're making 3D movies. That's how 3D movies work, yeah. 3D movies are a little lazier in a way, right? So what they do is they just have two cameras, and they just move them a little bit apart, and mm. then they film the same shot. There's a lot of tricky st stuff in it because our eyes are actually like moving around continuously. Of course, cameras are like fixed, uh, and so you have to like set different what's called disparity for different scenes like things that are near you want to you want to change how far or how close these cameras are mm. uh, but uh this is actually yeah so this is a big thing in hollywood so things that work for 2d like jump cuts right things like very quickly changing are terrible for 3d and people really complain about headaches and you know like not really enjoying it um, ah. so there's there's people in hollywood trying to work out what works in 3d and it's it's quite different than what works in 2d movies um well i in my opinion avatar did not work in 3d really? I, I hated that movie i think so that's much. that's the best example of a 3d movie I, oh really I really spend a lot of time on it oh I, well i mean visually stunning but i i found the story to be <laughs> Well, yeah. So 3D is not going to make a story better. There's oh, come on! There's nothing you can do about a story when you have a 3D movie. Yeah, it just I guess now it just allows you to then get distracted and like, oh, look at this, yeah. you know, this jungle scene or something like that. Well, this is also how we're um, exploring the universe with satellites and stuff too, right? They're they're having microscopes from two different um, parts of space, kind of taking shots of the same. Um, area in space and determining kind of a like what a distance, what the distance and, is. Uh, I don't know. So yeah, I don't know enough about astrophysics. It's, it's fine. I'm just going to go it. ahead and say that I'm right. Then that's how uh, it is. <laughs> 
This is way better than when I I'm just flat wrong, <laughs> and a scientist knows it, which is yeah. a lot of the case. So, um, it, okay, so you have the you're getting this 3D this stereo information from two different pictures being taken from your eyeballs, but there's a lot of other information kind of uh, that we're taking in for this. So uh, yeah, for this, together 3D so, world. Yeah, so yeah, let's talk about the 3D world specifically, right? Yeah. So there's lots of cues, visual cues that give you information about where objects are in space. Um, so there's also, it's not the case that, you know, all of a sudden you can't see or judge the, the depth of objects when you close one eye, right? I can close one eye and I can still say that you're closer to me than the wall behind you. And that has to be true because that's how occlusion works, right? So things that are occluding other things have to be closer than the things that they are occluding. There's stuff behind me that you can't see because exactly. I'm in the way of and it, so, that's so it's clearly must, behind must be, me. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that's one cue. Uh, the other one is you can move your head, uh, and things that are farther away will move less compared to things that are closer to you on the on the image that you have in your eye in that case. Mm. Uh, and so, for example, when you look at pigeons, this is what they're doing all the time, right? So pigeons have eyes that are on the side of their head. Um, they don't really have a very good stereo vision trying to use their eyes together because they're pointing in completely opposite directions. That's just not a way for them to do it. So what they do instead is they move their head. And that's why you see them like making those weird head movements. Oh, really? Yeah, that's they're trying to figure out how far things are away from them, and they have to do that. Or chickens is the same thing. Right? Ah, that's why now they're doing you, that goofy you know, move. Yeah, it's oh, not, that's so interesting. It's not because they're just weird, or <laughs> that, that's not the reason why they're weird. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, and then there's other things. So there's height in the plane. This is another thing. So the the higher something is in your visual field, the far more likely it is to be farther away. Things that are close to you tend to be low in the visual field. And you can check this right now, right? So this table, or sitting at a table, uh, is is lower and therefore closer. And things that are like up hmm. in the visual field have to be farther away. Or it's not it's not a hard and fast rule, but it's a heuristic that the brain uses to try and figure things out. Um, what what's the um, what's like the mirage uh, when you're looking down the road on a hot day? Um, haze yeah and there's that haze there Um, it's kind of I guess that's a physics problem right because the light is traveling faster through the warm part yeah the the, the light gets bent around a little bit through the through the the particles that are there and that's that's what you're seeing and particles are moving more because things are warm Hmm. Um, so what happens when you um, when you only have one eye when you lose sight in an eye, I I read a little bit about um, I think I Al, Oliver Sacks's book um, The Mind's Eye. You think about Stereo Sue? This is somebody who recovered Perhaps. stereo vision. And I think he lost sight in one eye for a while yeah, as he, well. He had heavy migraines. I don't. Yeah. I think he did. He might. had some eye operation and he lost sight for a little while. Stereo Sue, I think. Yeah, yeah, that sounds very familiar. Yeah, so Stereo Sue is interesting because she well. So let's step back a little bit. Right? Okay. So th- there's this idea. There's, so this is the developmental story of depth perception. Um, so the idea is that in order for you to develop accurate depth perception, um, you have to develop that during the critical period, is what it's called. And this is a period in your infancy uh, where you have to learn how to combine the images from the two eyes. This is not something that you're born with. You have to get this from experience to some extent. And the idea is that after this critical period, if you haven't developed 3D perception or stereo vision, you haven't 
got in your eyes to figure out how to work together, then that ability is lost. You can't you can't recover. You can't learn that at a later age. Um, so the brain is plastic initially, and it becomes more static uh, as time goes by, and then parts start disappearing as time goes by as well. This is how it is. But then there's these ex- these uh, counterexamples, and Sarah Sue is one of them. She recovered claims to have recovered because I'm a scientist so I have to be like careful about these things right um, so she recovered stereo vision I think around the age of 40 uh, and people ask her all the time like what you know what's the difference and to her the difference isn't so much as you can see depth because you could see depth before right she could drive a car or she was allowed to drive a car um, and, not, <laughs> and she didn't kill herself for 40 years so she probably did a good job uh, but what she said was that the, the biggest realization is that when you have stereo vision when you have 3d vision you can much better appreciate the space between objects so it's not really seeing how far each object is but uh, seeing that there's space between these objects so she's describing looking at a tree and seeing all the leaves and actually seeing all these leaves being separated in space from each other Hmm. so that's that's what stereo vision gets you or that's one one take on it I mean, it certainly makes it easier, right? It's my understanding that if you like wear an eye patch for a while, walking around, you might miss the perception of like a curb or something like that. You might you might perceive as as just a flat surface and not realize you're about to walk onto or over a curb. Or- yeah, it's subtle, but it's stuff that like that. Yeah, of course. In day to day life, you're like, oh, close one eye, nothing happens. But of course, you have to think of this as this. This is the state of your life, right? You're doing this all the time, and yeah, you're you're more prone to accidents. Um, if you wanna at home do an experiment, uh, what you can do is you can take a pen with a cap and then uh, try to put the cap on the pen. That should be super easy. Um, you close one eye, you do the same thing, still easy. Now you have your friend hold the pen and you try to put the cap on the pen with one eye closed. You're going to find that you're going to have a really hard time doing that. Oh, that's interesting. This is like an experiment you can do at all. Uh, uh, yeah, well, now I'm just waiting to, <laughs> <laughs> after it's done. And the, the first thing I'm going to do is hand you my pen and make you play weird games with me. Uh, <laughs> that sounded strange. Um, uh, so... It, it, it's a, and, and what about... Um, and, and what about blind people that are um, all of the sudden able to see after a period of time. Because um, sometimes it doesn't just, boom, make sense right away, right? It doesn't make sense, yeah. No, this is a big problem. Um, there's a uh, Paralympic skier. I'm blanking on his name. It might come to me in a, in a minute. So this is somebody who was competitively skiing while blind, which by itself is like crazy. So he basically has a spotter that goes behind him and tells him which ways to turn. Uh, and so he was congenitally blind, so blind from birth. Uh, and eventually this, this surgery became available where they could restore his vision. And in fact, they restored his vision. I don't know how old he was. He must have been in like his 20s or 30s when that happened. And um, he, yeah, but you'd expect like, you know, you, you can see and then you can just, that's what seeing is. You can just see everything. But um, he couldn't make sense of stuff. And so the way that he describes it is that he has to do this perceptual inference thing in slow motion. So he's like, well, there's like this patch over here and then there's other patch over here. So probably there's like, he talks about a newsstand. He's talking about walking down the street. So there's probably a newsstand over here. But he has to like cognitively think about this and like work through it and what's there. And one thing that really bugged him 
So he still skis blind. He chooses to like blindfold himself because he gets distracted by uh, shadows from the ski lift, which seems really weird to us, right? But what happens is there's these black patches that are moving on the snow that we don't even pay attention to because we're like, that's a shadow. That's not a thing. But for him, he can't really see if that's a thing or not because it looks the same as everything else. And so he would like avoid shadows and stuff like that. It really messed with him. Oh, that's interesting. Um, it, it is interesting how we how we put everything um, uh, together, and, and why is it so? I, I guess I I think I just answered my own question inside my head. But I, I was thinking of when when you're like uh, uh, we're in Wisconsin, so there's a lot of like deer hunters around, and they're looking through through a scope, and they're having to, they're only using one eye, and I suppose um, I mean binoculars wouldn't need do much good because you don't really need to know the depth that your bullet needs to travel you just need to see the you, you want you want, you want the bullet to intersect the 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 deer yeah that's that's pretty much it and there actually binocular vision is not helping you because you can't really like judge the trajectory right because well so we, we sometimes talk about cyclopean vision so this is vision with one eye as if you were a cyclops so what we see day-to-day world is not the world as it is appears from one or the other eye it's actually this virtual eye that's in between your two eyes that's like the the viewing direction that we see mm. and so this is going to mess with you when you try to shoot something because you're looking if you if you were to look through both eyes because you're not going to get the heading exactly right and so you close one eye and then uh, that problem gets solved i see and how does how does um focus work exactly if you're like you know if i want to put my finger out in front of my face and Mm -hmm. i can see that clearly but then i can look behind it at the desk and i can see that clearly and then the fingers blurry or kind of double vision so that's that's the lens in your eye becoming slightly thicker or slightly thinner um so there's these tiny muscles sitting on the outsides of your of your eye um that are pulling or relaxing and that changes the lens, and that then makes the light reflect slightly differently, so that it either converges um, right at the uh, at the retinal surface, or like slightly in be- uh, behind or in-, in front of it. And depending on what distance you want to see, you want to converge different distances of light, and so you change that refractive property of the lens. Hmm. Physics. Um. So if you're, it would there be a way to train? Um, like, like, do people get better at picking up on certain cues? Like, if say, if say you are a tennis player <laughs> looking at lines or something, you you might get better at understanding perspective or picking up on um, perspective cues that are working with your perception. If you're a painter, maybe you're um, discriminating color on a little finer. Yeah, that, that might be that might be true. So we do experiments in the lab where we actively train people on depth perception. This is something called hyperacuity. Um, so what we do is uh, we show you a, a patch, and that's going to be at some slight difference from the, everything surrounding it. Uh, and we can change what that different distance is between the patch and and everything else, right? So it's either a little bit closer to you than everything else, or it's a little bit farther away 
from you than everything else. And then we ask, what's the smallest distance that you can resolve? So when can you still tell me, oh, this patch is behind everything else or it's in front of everything else? Uh, what's that smallest amount of distance that we can do that, we, that you can still resolve? And that gets better over time. So if we do this, we actually do this over the course of, uh, I think we do 10 days now. So somebody comes by, they sit in a dark room for an hour for every day for 10 days. And then they improve their acuity by a factor of two. Um, so they get twice as good at mm. the task. Uh, but these distances are, they're insanely small. Like you, you get really, really good at this task. Um, so the way we, 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 we look at this is what's the resolution of the, the individual cells in the retina? And the, uh, the, the, the distances that you're able to resolve are at the resolution of single cells. So now you have single cells in the retina picking up these signals and relaying that to the rest of the brain. Um, so it's a pretty pretty accurate system once you train it a little bit. Now, if this then stays with you and, you know, after five years you still have that, then I'm not really sure about if you, uh, if you still use it. Oh, uh, I see. Yeah, you lose it or lose it kind of a Yeah, that's probably it. Thing. So if you need this you know, all the time on a regular basis, I don't know, you're like a professional needle threader or something like that, then... You know, you, you you would think that you keep it, but that might be that, you know, in your day-to-day -day life, it's not that important. And so then it goes away again. Hmm. Um, that's interesting. It, do you think that people's perception of, um, it, like, say I wanted to uh, learn echolocation. Um, one, don't start by driving. Um, but, but I, I mean, there's been some studies, right, where you can blindfold people or whatever, and they can kind of start to teach themselves it a, a little bit. Um, and I mean, it, it's kind of impossible to imagine what like a bat's world um, is like, or what they're quote unquote seeing with their mind's eye or whatever. Mm -hmm. But would that be influenced by if you were already you already got a bunch of visual information you've lived a whole life seeing and then you go blind or blindfold yourself or mm -hmm. whatever it might be and then you're learning this echolocation and that would probably be that new learned information would be based off of what you knew before in a way yeah, whereas yeah. if you were born blind it might be a completely different perception altogether yeah, that's possible. Yeah, it's it's hard to speak to that. We yeah, do right. we do know that people who are blind have activity in the parts of their brain that are, will show activity for people that can see. So it's the same areas where you know some you could argue they don't, they're not getting any input because they're blind, uh, but those parts of the brain are still active. And so you can either say it's some sort of like repurposing. So these areas are now being used for auditory information instead of visual information. Or you can say there's a more general representation that's trying to abstract away from auditory and visual information and builds up a representation that incorporates all of these modalities, like all of information from all of our senses. And probably the answer is a little bit of both. Hmm. Um, all right. So, uh, what are you working on right now that you're the most excited about? The most excited. Okay. Uh, this is hard, right? So which one of your children do you love the most? Uh, well, talk about it. You could talk about all your children if you want. I'm interested in all of it. <laughs> yes. The little uh, yeah, redheaded stepchild. <laughs> um, so one, one project that, uh, I think is cool is, um, it's called stereo motion scotomas, which is a very technical term and a mouthful. Um, 
So we're interested in, in motion through depth, or that's one of the interests in the lab, right? So what allows you to see things moving towards or away from you? That sounds super trivial, right? Because we can all do it. It doesn't seem really like a problem that anybody needs to solve. Uh, but it turns out that um, when we get people in the lab and we very carefully exp uh, manipulate the kind of cues that people have access to, over 50% of the people that we check, so these are people off the street, will have some, in some part of their visual field, they'll have blind spots where they are not able to discriminate to approaching from receding motion. So I can show, you know, a little patch moving towards or away from them in one part of the visual field, and they can give me the answer perfectly fine, like it's 100% correct every single time that I go towards, this one is away. Then I move that patch over a little bit, all of a sudden I'm in this area called a scotoma, and you are now a chance. All of a sudden you've dropped. You just can't do the task. Um, so there's hmm. something weird. Well, what, what we think is going on is um, the information from the two eyes is not being properly combined. Uh, now, why this is so prevalent, why this happens in more than half of, uh, you know, every individual of, of the normal population, that we're trying to figure out. Uh, and we do that using what's called psychophysics, so behavioral experiments, uh, but also using neuroimaging. So we're looking to see at what part of the visual processing, what, what part in the brain, do you start seeing these signals go away, right? Because that's what has to happen. Like, these signals have to be absent at some point because they're not being used to actually make a decision. Hmm. Yeah, that, I mean, that is weird that, um, again, it's almost like a fractal-like understanding of, it, I mean, the other thing is, is how does the brain cut off, like, the very point at which, like, okay, this is no longer relevant for this particular circumstance i don't and, need to see like discriminate all these different colors i have three co three cones is enough right and and i mean or or even like zooming or anything the the point at which your brain is i don't understand that mechanism where where your brain's just like that's it that's all the energy we're going to use on that uh, on that process i mean i often think about this when i'm trying to read science or whatever and my brain's just <laughs> shutting down on me Try slowly. Harder, brain. Like, come on i'll i'll have some sugar or something just keep keep going and i can't but there's i mean in in everything we do in uh in uh, perceiving vision and everything else there has to be i mean some yeah you can do point. an analog right like why can't i run a marathon in one hour like you know, <laughs> right, right. It's the same thing, like because um, you know, yeah, you're limited by both physical, uh, you know, energetic factors, I mm. guess, and and just the architecture of the system as it is. And some of that is happenstance, and some of them this this trade-off between energetic demands and you know what we need to have in order to behave successfully in our world. Um, I'm curious if you're if you're studying motion um, toward and away. There, there's this um, I don't know what it's called the phenomenon in hearing where if if you hear something coming toward you, you react um, that uh, just a bit quicker than if you hear something going away from you. Um, and uh, kind of the evolutionary reasons is if something's coming toward your head, you got to quick. I better duck. Whereas something, if something's going away, it maybe not be as, as pressing of yes. an issue. Is there something similar happening um, in vision? We do see a little asymmetry, but this is so when you're confusing confusing direction of motion. 
um, you're weirdly are more likely when I show you something that's approaching, you're more likely to judge that as receding than vice versa. So that's exactly the opposite of what you would want, right? So you would want to be like, well, if I'm not sure, I should guess that it's going coming towards me because then you can take evasive action. But actually what the brain happens to do is the exact opposite. If I'm not sure, I'm going to say, hey, it's going away from me. So it's, it's a little weird. Really? Yeah. Huh. Yeah, that is surprising. Yeah, and we do this. Um, we actually do that in virtual reality. So we, we use these Oculus Rift headsets. Um, this is this new technology that's out. So you put on like these, well, yeah, it's a screen. We're sitting right in front of your face. But also when you move your head, everything updates accurately like it would if you're in a real room. Uh, and so we then see. That's awesome. How, you know, it's it's a lot of fun. The, the, <laughs> the participants really like doing it. They're like, "Oh, this is so cool." Oh man! Now I want to. If I would have known you had virtual reality, you could have hooked me up to. I would have well, shown maybe, up earlier. Maybe yeah, you should have. You should come back and we can, yeah, uh, yeah, we can strap you in. That'd be awesome. Uh, be, I'll be happy to do it. Yeah, the the people in the lab would be excited to do it. Oh, cool. So so what does it? So so there. Um, well, so this is some of this, uh, some of how we started out talking, right? So most experiments are done on computer displays, which are flat, and also we make sure that the uh, the, the observer is not moving relative to the display, and we do that by putting them in a in a single position and then give them something that's called a chin rest. So they're putting their chin on something, um, and then looking at um, a display. But then we talked about earlier where you know chickens and pigeons they actually move their head to figure out where things are. And so with this uh, virtual reality headset, we can do the same thing for humans and see if they use the same kind of cues. And it turns out that they do. So you're better in judging direction of motion when you're allowed to move your head and when we update things according to what they should do if, it, if they were, in fact, real objects. Then we mess with people and we actually give them a delayed update for the head position, which is exactly what it would look like if you were drunk, right? So everything uh. is like a little <laughs> out of sync. And people then do worse. Oh, so huh. they, they actively use this information. They use head motion information to try and figure out what information is, hit, is hitting their retina. And that uh, that leads me to think of how um, Im- important our understanding of how our own perception works and, and well, and other animals and everything, too, in, in trying to understand how to build new virtual reality or artificial intelligence to pick up on and and detect uh you know i take it for granted that i can see a file cabinet right now but for a computer to know that it's looking at a file cabinet it would um theoretically need like a a picture of every file cabinet from every single angle that there is and and then match it and be like oh okay i found a match that's a file cabinet but that's not at all what our um what our brains are doing no, yeah, you don't have uh, an infinite number of pictures of file cabinets in your head. Uh, but then that really sh- shows this perceptual inference uh, point, right? So everything we see is a combination of the information that's coming in at the time and everything else that we've known, everything, all the knowledge that we've picked up previously. So we know what file cabinets look like. Uh, and so we use that information to say, well, this visual information that I'm getting right now, is that consistent with file cabinets that I've seen in the past? 
in what they call a generative way. So you're you're basically generating a representation of a file cabinet and then see if that matches on to this, the input that you're getting right now. Like you have a template in your mind It's almost. a template, but it's like a flexible template. So it's a template that you can change. You'll say, you know, you have a template for a file cabinet, but then you can change the width of it, right? So you're like, okay, so a file cabinet can have any width. And so I just generate like a different width and see if that's consistent. Like what's the width of this file cabinet? Hmm. That's interesting. So um, we have a little bit more time. Um, what before we wrap up? Um, could you plug the uh, charity of the week? Ah, uh, yes, um, the charity of the week. I, so I used to uh, work with these guys, which is why I'm really interested in them. It's called um, Partners in Education. Um, they're actually based in Austin, Texas, which is where I was a postdoc. So I was there uh, for five years before I came here. I love uh, Austin, Texas. What did you come here for? Madison's uh, cool, too. The, but the Madison, the Austin of the North, right? Uh, yeah, it is. It just colder. <laughs> a, little, a little colder, yeah. So you stay in, in Austin, you stay in, in the summer, and in Madison, you stay in, in the winter. Yeah. Uh, so I was there, and I would go to um, inner-city schools, um, to talk can, to... I'm sorry, can you say the name of it one more time? It's Partners in Education. Partners in Education, yeah. okay. Uh, and the program that I, I was in specifically was Partners in Math, right? Because uh, for what I do, you need a lot of math. And that's not always clear to students. And so I would go to middle school students and be like, well, you know, this math you're doing right now is really sucky. Um, or so it seems. I, I think I didn't have a great time, like, you know, getting math in, in middle school. Uh but this is what you can do with it. And then, you know, I would show them a picture of the brain. And then, first of all, they wouldn't believe that I would be able to get a picture of the brain anywhere. They're like, well, you're just some dude who's coming in to, like, help us with our homework. <laughs> like, you, get, you know, this, you, don't, you don't do this on the side. <laughs> uh, but I'm like, no, really, this is, you know, this is my brain. I got this, like, the other week. And they're like, okay. Uh, and I think it made a big difference for, for the, these kids. Like, you know, seeing what you can actually do with it and give them a little bit of extra motivation. Um, to, you know, stick, stay stay in school, I guess, is the way to say it. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's what I needed. I was I never understood, like, well, when am I ever going to use it? Because I had it in my mind that I was going to be a stand-up comedian. So I was just like, yeah, I'm not going to use any of this stuff. Never paid attention. What do and I now here I am, X amount of years later, trying to play catch-up as quickly as I can. See, well, that's, yeah, that's great. And, and I think really, you know, I wouldn't have been here if it wasn't for... Uh, people taking the time when I was in school to, you know, give me a little bit extra time and like say, you know, maybe this sucks right now, but this is what you eventually may be able to do. Hmm. And so how can people get information? Uh, there is a website. Let me see if I can pull it up. Well, I can, yeah, you can send it to me and I can put it on the site. Splice it in. So yeah, there's a website, no partners, partners in Math, I think is what it's, uh, Partners in Education, I think is just a straight up. A link here. I'll, I'll, we can like splice this in. No problem. Asian Austin. I will just make. An yeah, I hear, so uh, if you wanna, if you wanna know more, go to austinpartners.org. Austin Partners. Austin Partners at ORG. Dangerously close to Austin Powers. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if they're aware of that. Two, two different, two totally different things. Um, uh, well, that, that's uh, that's very cool. I'm I'm looking forward um, to uh, next time when I get to get hooked up to virtual reality. Maybe I'll talk you into um, 
hooking me up with a infrared or just an Arnold Schwarzenegger detector. Maybe we can <laughs> build it'd just be like uh if someone sees them, it's an app on your phone and then they they say, I saw him here, and then I wear like a headband around that's always, <laughs> that has something that circles around and is always pointed in the direction of Arnold Schwarzenegger. This is very useful. I don't know how this didn't evolve in our biology, but um, <laughs> fortunately we'll have, we'll have uh, computers uh, to sort this out. Sometimes I say crazy things just at the end of my episode. Uh, are you a fan of OK Go videos? Yeah, I like OK Go videos. They're pretty good usually. Do you? um, That seems like something that you could show in a class and be like, "So this is what's happening here," and that's—I don't know. I'm—I'm a huge fan. This is a a visual illusion. There is a oh man, there's one of the more recent videos. I forget what it is. Has like something like 40 visual illusions or something like that i read some uh oh i gotta check that one out i haven't seen it yeah i saw it i actually saw it from i think steven pinker tweeted about it or something like that and then i I checked it out and it's uh it's pretty mind-blowing so uh let's talk about one more of your babies real quick uh yeah um so yeah so everything we've talked about so far is is basic research right but then there's also a clinical component to the research. And so one of the things we're doing is uh, looking at amblyopia, which is a lazy eye. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is a developmental um, disorder of the visual system. People generally think it's something wrong with the eyes, right? I mean, it even has lazy eye in the, in, in the name, but it's actually a developmental disorder of the brain. Uh, so this is when the two eyes are not coordinated well in development. And what starts happening is that the good eye starts suppressing what we normally call the, the lazy eye. But it's more that the good eye is the bully eye. So it's like bullying the other eye and suppressing information from that eye. Oh. And so that then has consequences for the neuroarchitecture in the brain. And so what we're doing is we're looking to see where um, changes in the brain occur as a result of, of lazy eye with the goal of eventually like reversing these changes, right? So what, what therapy can we develop to overcome this and then recover um, the stereo vision, 3D, 3D vision, and people that have lazy eye? Hmm. Yeah, well, you just put a patch over that bully? Put a patch over the bully, but that only works when you're, when you're developing, right? Oh, okay. So the question is, what happens when you're in your 20s and for some reason either the therapy didn't stick, which happens in about 50% of the, to the cases, because of compliance. If you're listening to this right now and you don't want to wear your patch, you should totally do it because the biggest problem is you're not sticking to it and you're going to have this for the rest of your life. Uh, so there's compliance and then there's other unknown factors, right? And so that's what we're working on to see if we can identify these factors and if there's anything that we can do later in life. Hmm. Um, uh, yeah, that is interesting to me, the flexibility of of the brain is it is it the older that you're getting the the harder it's going to be or is that is that um that's a, a it's or no it's certainly the traditional story and i think there's a lot of truth to it but i think also that the brain is more plastic than we commonly think right mm-hmm. so that for a long time there was also this idea that um you generate all the nerves the the, the neurons that you're going to have for your life early in you know in you know, in development and then you're just stuck with them uh that's not true uh and you can kind of do the thought experiment right so whenever you drink alcohol neurons die that's just how it works and Mm -hmm. uh, you would pretty soon run out of neurons (laughs) if they weren't being regenerated yeah i think a lot of people would argue that i ran out of neurons (laughs) (laughs) 
a long time ago. But I'm well, trying to get them back. You seem pretty well functioning. <laughs> Um, just keeping the good ones right <laughs> yeah yeah uh um s- little synaptic pruning uh, getting rid of all exactly. those you're that doing i that i don't need with, brain with therapy alcohol. is what you're doing <laughs> uh, well thank you so much boss rokers for joining me and uh I, I look forward to hanging out again next time i i come through and um maybe i'll report back on or, or maybe we'll do do a little thing with uh, virtual reality or something like that. Sometime. I think that would be Who great. Knows? Yeah, and I would be very happy to strap you in and uh, show you the virtual world. Very cool. Well, thank you. Thanks, Shane. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the Here We Are podcast. Next week on the program, my surgeon who saved my foot comes on the show to talk about all of the good news of late and how how bad things were getting back earlier this year. And uh, really interesting, fun discussion with a really bright guy who's excellent at communicating um, the medical practice really fantastic episode super fun so make sure and tune in next week especially if you don't know the scoop with my my um more recent foot surgery back in january and or my injuries in general maybe you're new to um this podcast or to um me i don't know it, I'm sure there's a few people that are hearing about this for the first time. So make sure and tune into that one. It's awesome. I'm Dave Ross. Hey, and I'm Hampton Yunt. And we host Suicide Buddies on Starburns Audio. That's right. It's a podcast about suicide, but not to make light of it. We actually talk about suicidal thoughts, depression, kind of with a sense of levity that Dave and I have with each other. He's my best friend. Come on. Yeah, we're buddies. (laughs) Suicide Buddies. (laughs) That's the title. One of our favorite episodes that we've recorded so far is about this guy, Jan Pataki, who was a Polish aristocrat in the 19th century, Mm -hmm. and he, uh, one of the reasons... it's possible that he killed himself <laughs> is that he thought he was a werewolf. Oh. Check out a clip. It also makes me think, like, we were talking about in the Norway uh, black metal episode, how, like, just the culture of your surroundings can affect you. Like, yeah. he's in a castle in Poland. He's, like, I mean, if you yeah. lived in a castle in Poland and no one knew anything about anything, you might be like, I'm a bat. I'm probably a bat. <laughs> 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 That's like literally what happened to Batman. <laughs> he literally is in his mansion. He's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm, I'm a, a bat. bat. I'm a bat. I'm a <laughs> bat. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a bat. bat that helps people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bat that helps people. I'm a, I'm a I don't know what you want from me. And uh, my, and my a, girlfriend, she's a cat. She's a cat. My she, girlfriend's she, a cat. She steals things. She's a woman who steals things. She's a cat. I'm a bat. I'm a I bat. She's a cat. We fight a penguin. My. Uh, my <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha